neuroscientist Lucy Brown and her research team distributed flyers across several campuses in the New York area to recruit participants for a brain imaging study. The flyers had one sentence highlighted, and it said this, have you just been rejected in love but can't let go? Soon enough, Brown recalls she had college students who were asked to bring a photo with them so that as their brain was being scanned, they could look at the photo, and some were were crying as they did so. The result of this was that the brain scans resembled that of the brain scans of cocaine addicts craving for a drug. The pain of being rejected was like an addict needing a fix, but this time the drug was approval and wanting to win the X back. It's a strange thing to think of God as a jilted lover. But that is the picture given in the book of Hosea. Now, if God had a brain scan, (laughs) it would not indicate some unmet felt need, but a compulsion of genuine love. Now, if you think that somehow God is cool with being cheated on by his people, then you are going to miss a major point of this book. And we looked last week at the judgment of God, the consequences his people face after trying to synchronize worship of God, Jehovah God, with the worship of the idol Baal. God promised them the effects of idol worship would be devastating when he made the Mosaic Covenant with Israel hundreds of years before this date in Hosea. And indeed, they did face a loss of intimate relationship with God, loss of physical blessing, and an inner turmoil that would certainly haunt her, being Israel. This was all pictured in the real-life example of Hosea's wife, Gomer, who was a serial adulterer. And the next section of Hosea 2 takes a detour more like a hard right turn away from the judgment. And it talks about a jilted lover whose heart is broke and has to endure the vilest behavior from his bride, but responds with divine love. It's really a kind of unimaginable grace when you think about it. We can't appreciate this kind of grace until we come face to face with our own sin in terms of the grace from God. Now, if you think you've never sinned or you sin very little, I'd love to read your book. Not really, (laughs) because it's not going to be true. But the fact is is that sin ravages our hearts. It ravages the lives of others. And if you've ever felt condemnation, you've ever felt shame, you've ever despaired, then this book is for you because it is about the boundless love of God. 
And so God, we need a dose of your boundless love. We are desperately in need of your touch in our lives. Would you do so today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. It almost seems scandalous for Hosea to imply an attraction similar to sexual attraction in God's desire for his people. We notice a couple things about this metaphor. God is conveying the depth of his desire and passion for his people. Many get to the point that they just can't believe that God is still crazy about them, especially when they are face to face with their sin and all their failures. Yet God is still seeking out his adulterous people. The other point to this metaphor is that God is wooing his people. It's a special kind of of wooing. He's providing all that is needed for a love relationship to take place without sacrificing the will of his people. He's not, you know, manipulating them. He's not forcing the relationship. When we say that people have a free will, what we mean by that is they can equally reject or love him, and yet he is seeking to appeal to people in such a way that they will, in fact, love him. How's he gonna do this? Well, he's gonna allow Israel to experience the impact of her adultery, to lead her into another desert, like the wilderness of the original wandering from the bondage of Egypt. And though she forgets him, he will not forget her. Though she's entangled, he will continually help her. Yahweh will draw Israel into the wilderness so that she'll be alone just with him, free of the enticements of the idol bales. Have you ever hit rock bottom and realized you've had nothing left? Maybe it's God getting rid of the distractions and you realize it's just me and God now. I've had some experiences like that. And this immediate history would mean continued exile in Babylon for Israel. God will appeal to Israel with tender, attractive words. He's going to speak kindly to her heart. And the Lord wants to woo Israel back to himself. Not an easy thing if you've ever dealt with people who are in the middle of an adulterous affair. It's almost like a bondage. And Chuck Swindoll even called it an insanity, a temporary insanity instead of repentance. They stay in this path with all the the injury that they're doing to family. And that was Israel. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time 
when she came out of the land of Egypt. She'll be like a young lover who appreciates her mate, just like Israel was loving on God for getting them out of Egypt. He will replenish her vineyards, those that were ravaged because of her disobedience. And Hosea is reiterating the point made in verse 14, but adds the phrase, he will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor means valley of trouble. It is a site east of the Dead Sea where Israel was in trouble for disobedience during the early days of the conquest of Canaan. The valley of Achor would be the last place Israel would have expected a doorway of hope and joy. It was synonymous with failure. Do you have a story you would rather not tell? Do you have a secret you don't want anybody knowing? Do you have this narrative you just don't want to get into with people because it's too painful, it's too shameful? I've got some, and I bet you've got some. And that's the kind of story of the Valley of Achor. They knew well of how their ancestors under Joshua captured the city of Jericho and the instructions were made clear. All the spoils of the defeated city were sacred and no one was to keep anything for himself. But a man by the name of Achan refused to obey. He took a, a valuable robe 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar, and he hid them under his tent. And Joshua was to lead an army to attack a place called Ai. Didn't know of Achan's disobedience. This should have been an easy victory. And Joshua led the attack, and guess what? It wasn't an easy victory They were defeated, and he wondered, why in the world were we defeated like this? And he's he's going to God in in a fast and in sackcloth and ashes, and he's praying to the Lord, why did this happen? And the Lord reveals to him, well, listen, there's a guy named Achan in your midst who took these goods when I told you not to. And then we read this. So Joshua sent messengers And they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord, and Joshua with all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor, And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of this place is called the Valley of Achor. Here in Israel with Hosea. Israel is rife with sin, reminded of this painful failure with Achan, and yet God says, 
I'm going to give you a door of hope. The word used in this verse, by the way, for answer in verse 15, it also can be translated saying, it's as if God is saying from this horrible sinning, I will move you to singing in joy and hope. I mean, how can God create a a tender new courtship with a wayward woman? This hope can only come from a new covenant. Jeremiah testifies of this. Behold, the days were coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And again in Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. By changing the hearts of people through the new covenant in the cross of Christ, God will have a people who love him. He is changing them from the inside out a new heart, the spirit inside them. What an unfathomable grace and love that God is giving his people. You feel shame? You have a past that creates a heaviness? There is a God who specializes in shame and failures and making them a song of his redemption. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. Israel was marked and identified as Baal worshipers. It was shameful. Baal is also, can be translated as a master. So it's like this, Baal is a master only. You serve out of obligation. You contrast that with Jehovah God who's like a husband who moves in the heart of Israel with the new covenant They no longer have to speak of Baal. There's no need of Baal. So God is inviting Israel and us into a relationship of affection as a loving spouse to another. Not one of just servitude, of legalism. You know, sign this to let us know you're with us by doing these certain subcultural things. Many 
communities of faith, you have to do that. This is not that. This is a love that God is communicating a great grace, a great acceptance in which these people can have an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. How can a selfish human being bent on self-preservation be changed? How many of you have ever said, you know, that person's never gonna change? You say that especially of old people, they've only done this for 50, 60 years, they're never gonna change. But listen, there is change available only through the transforming power of an empty tomb and a living savior who creates a new man. I saw my mother-in-law come to Christ in her middle 60s, a changed woman as a part of a religious system that she got out of and then started loving the Lord, a new person. And he initiates such a relationship and gives us a gift of faith as we embrace his love and forgiveness. Fills us with his spirit. Listen, God is more ready to answer than we are to ask. And he's faithful to his covenant to be our God and consistently call us back into relationship with him. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. This covenant will eventually lead to peace on the earth. Humankind will not be at war. That's what is meant by abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. The animals will be at peace with all other creatures. Israel will exist without fear and will enjoy safety. Think about it. There is a future in which Israel and the Arabs will welcome each other into their homes. Black and white people understand and love each other. We can see a piece of that now, but we see the general culture not knowing how to accomplish that without Christ. There'll come a day in which the mongoose and the cobra will huddle together in the same hole. And what Hosea has in view here is a restoration of the created order, a paradise recovered. It is the same vision that has its fulfillment in the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21. And we have the benefit of centuries of history and added revelation than what Hosea had, but it's still future for us as well. Again, we can get some snapshots and we enjoy those, but we're looking for a better land. What difference does it make that we know that there is such a world to come? Does it make a difference? 
I mean, we are facing COVID. We are facing multiple conspiracy theories, civil strife, the, the death of digital truth. You read something on social media, you have no idea whether it's true or not. The unreliability of governments and politicians. Does it not feel at times that the injustice, that the lack of integrity in our leaders is overwhelming? And some are gonna say, what's the use? Some are gonna say, let's revolt. How is a Christian to respond? I mean, does it make a difference that we know we're on the winning team? What's gonna happen eventually? I would say it does. I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. If you're a high school football team and you're gonna play a quarter against the Kansas City Chiefs, does it make any difference to you to know that at the end of that quarter, the score will either be tied or you'll be ahead? Does that make a difference in how you approach playing that quarter? You better believe it does. When you know what the score is gonna be in the end. God will execute his justice with all this injustice that we see. At some point, it will happen. But what are we to do in the midst of all this injustice and evil? Well, there was a situation in the early church like this in the book of James. Poor people were being taken advantage of by the rich people, even in how they were seated within the congregation. It reminds me of a homeless man that walked into our church one day when we were over at our other facility, and he came into our building, and he said, well, I got kicked out of another church because of the way that I was dressed. It happens. And James wrote this straightforward letter, and he was telling the rich people to quit it, cut it out, and treat these people that they're, you know, in the imago Deo of God, the image of God. But what are the poor to do in the meantime? What if you are getting the short end of the stick? Well, we do justice when possible as the people of God. We do whatever we can. But what happens when that runs out? I think James has something to say. He tells the poor not to try to retaliate, but says this in James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The coming of Christ ensures justice will be done, and it eases our load that we don't have to carry all of that out. When I was a child, I would have to walk outside of Cleveland, Ohio, to my elementary school, about a mile or so. And on one particular day, there was a kid who lived across the street, a couple grades older than me, and just came over and started pushing me on the ground. I eventually got to the school, I went home, told my brother, my brother went with me the next day and he wailed on the other guy. I gotta tell you, I felt a lot better about going to school after that. Justice was done, I knew it was coming. And 
I had someone on my side that would protect me. We can be patient, knowing that God will execute his justice. That doesn't mean that there aren't some things that we can fix now, but when we run out of our human ability, we must trust God at this point. My life is in his hands, and I am still breathing, and I am still going to try to contribute to the kingdom of God. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord God. Notice the language. There's going to be a betrothal, a new vow, a new covenant. This marks a new beginning like the freshness of new love, as one commentator called it. It'll be as though the Lord and Israel had returned to the, the days of courtship. You know, wide-eyed, loving stares into one another. You know, betrothal in ancient Israel was much more binding than engagement is in our Western society. The law treated a betrothed couple as though they were legally married. Notice that how the uh, relationship with Israel is characterized. A permanence of relationship. I will betroth you to me forever. God's promise in the new covenant is permanent. Notice what it's marked by. Righteousness and justice. God will maintain a relationship with us of holiness, make us a people who are righteous, and in turn, we will do what is right with other people. We strive to contribute to human flourishing, and then we'll maintain family bonds with one another by loving even when we are wronged. Remember that during your Thanksgiving dinner when you have that member of your family that always creates uncomfortableness for somebody. Every family's got one. You wish maybe they were sick on Thanksgiving and wouldn't come, but no, they're gonna show up. But because they're family members, we love them. We go out of our way to still be kind and loving. That's this loving kindness. These are characteristics that mark the relationships that we have with God and the relationships with one another. This is what should mark us as a people. This is our identifying characteristic as the people of God. Righteousness, mercy, justice, love, faithfulness. It speaks to the quality of hearts and relationships. We lean into community when it's hard. We work out our differences. We stay faithful to God even when we don't get what we want, even when we don't get our prayers immediately answered in the affirmative. And what happens, though, is that we make something else the bullseye. Kind of reminds me of Janet and I. We're watching this week a documentary on Princess Diana from National Geographic, and they had tapes of her that were secretly made as she was married to Prince Charles. And what she said in one of those tapes is, the worst day of her life was, guess what? 
her wedding. Wow. The worst day of her life. And in some ways, you know what that reminded me of? Church. How church can sometimes be. You have all this stuff that goes on the stage, lights, everybody dancing around. Oh, man, must be the presence of God. What? Oh, wow. And then behind the scenes, do you see righteousness, justice, mercy, love, and faithfulness? A pastor that, out of town that I had lunch with this week talked about another guy that he worked with who was, you know, author, well-known, and he said, man, he was a jerk with us on the staff. Didn't relate well, but he was good on the stage. Mm-mm-mm. That's not the mark of Christianity. It's not what takes place on the stage. It's how you relate to one another. Again, what's underneath the hood? Righteousness, justice, mercy, love, faithfulness. That's the bullseye. Not some self-made Christianity that equates entertainment for God, moralistic therapy for biblical preaching. The church is to make mature disciples ready to serve and sacrifice for the kingdom. And what's the result of that? Well, there's this word no that's in our Hosea passage. It's the same word for intimacy with the spouse, like Adam, you know, knew Eve. And God invites us to intimacy with him, just like Revelation 3 that says, you know, God, we're to knock on the door and open up the door God does for us. And we come in and we enjoy this lavish supper. We're having fellowship with him. It's not a It's not a door to open for salvation. It's a door to open for intimate fellowship. And God is inviting us to this intimacy, not obligation, not a legalistic standard so that we can show off in front of everybody else, so that we can have this thing on the stage or so you can mark off the list. I didn't do that, didn't do this, didn't do that. Look at me. No, it's not that at all. It's actually, I think, this kind of list of Righteousness, justice, mercy, love, and faithfulness. You ever thought of praying for those things in your life? We have to pray, God, help me with this job, boy. We sure need this money. Nothing wrong with that, but how about this? Lord, that I can know your righteousness. Can I have that exhibited in my life, that I can execute justice in a way and understand that you are a just God and that I can be merciful, loving, faithful, so that when you open up the hood, you see something beautiful. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. The Lord will be aware of the needs of his people and their sustenance. They will pray, and the Lord moves from heaven to impact the earth to feed and provide for his people agricultural prosperity. Jezreel, once a place of rebellion, will be known as a place where God sows. And God responds to his prayer on behalf of Israel. And we're to notice that God is literally moving the heavens to make good and his promise to his people. And I will sow her for myself in the land. 
and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Remember, these are the names of the three children of Hosea. Imagine your name, not my people. (laughs) No mercy, and God changes the names. I mean, when God's people are deserving of judgment, instead, he's now giving them new names, a new covenant, And after Yahweh's disciplining judgment, Israel receives mercy and communion with him. And again, the three names are reversed. Instead of bloodshed, Jezreel will be a place of blessing. No mercy will be changed to mercy. Not my people to my people. This passage echoes even in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2, it says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And again in Romans 9, and indeed, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where I was said to them, you are not my people, there you shall be called sons of the living God. Both passages speak of God's undying love for his people, even in the midst of their sin. Wow. See, when people are grabbed by that, they're grabbed by their sin and they're humble, and they see the grace of God, there's this transparency that that, that ekes out. Unlike like with Princess Diana and Charles, you know, and all this lavish wedding and the wonderful stuff going on, and then you realize behind the scenes there was nothing but pain, and they were fighting each other constantly. It wasn't a genuine picture of what was reality. And that's what can take place in a church many times. It's what can take place in our life, but, but when there's humility and there's admittance of sin and God's grace washes us, you realize, wow, I don't have to be that way. I'm open about my struggles. I don't have to put on a facade. You're overwhelmed by the grace of God in your life. B.J. Miller was a sophomore at Princeton when one Monday night in November 1990, he and two friends slipped out for some drinks. They decided to climb a commuter train, parked at the adjacent rail station, just for some fun. When Miller got to the top, electrical current arced out of a piece of equipment into the wrist, uh, into the watch on his wrist. 11,000 volts shot through his left arm and down his legs. And when his friends reached him at the top of the train, there was smoke coming out of his feet. And Miller doesn't remember any of this. His memories don't kick in until several days later when he woke up in the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. Doctors took each leg just below the knee, then they turned to his arm, which triggered Miller into deeper grief. For weeks, the hospital staff considered him close to death, but Miller, in a devastated haze, didn't know that. He only worried about who he would be when he survived. For a long time, no visitors were allowed in the hospital room. The burn unit had to be this sterile environment. But on the morning that Miller's arm was going to be amputated just below the elbow, he describes a scene of support 
and grace from his community of friends. But a dozen friends and family members packed in it just a 10-foot-long corridor between the burn unit and the elevator just to catch a glimpse of him as he was rolled to surgery. They all dared to show up, Miller said. They all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. You know, God is always looking at our mangled mess of a life burned from past failures and iniquity, and he greets us with the smile of an adoring father. He's always welcoming us with a relationship that never ends, so our hearts overflow and we can worship him with gladness and no problem in sacrifice and service. That's the God we serve. That's the picture of Hosea. And that is the reality of what he's done in each of our lives. Let's pray.